Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Okay, Ephesians 3. So last week we looked at the second half of Ephesians 2, and Paul is talking about the cross, and he says the cross doesn't just uh, end the hostility between God and people, it also breaks down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And at that point, those are the only two groups. The world and the Jewish mind was divided between Jews and non-Jews, between Jew and Gentile. And Paul says the cross breaks down that wall of hostility. And we talked about what it looks like for us to not be people who build walls, but walk second and third and fourth and fifth miles with people. And then Paul closes that time, that section, by saying, here's what it looks like for us, or for y'all as Gentiles. He's writing a primarily Gentile audience. If, if the people of God are, are a country, then y'all are citizens. You're not foreigners. You're not strangers. If, if the people of God is a family, y'all are part of the household. If the people of God is a building, it's this new temple, then y'all are essential to that structure, and the Holy Spirit lives within you and within us. And now beginning in chapter 3, he moves back to prayer. He had been praying for them in chapter 1, and then he thought of this idea, the power that is available to us in Christ Jesus, and he runs off and he talks about the, the power, what this looks like in Jesus' life and what this power of God looks like in the life of the church, and now he's circling back to this prayer. So chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and now he quits praying again. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That's the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So Paul is circling back to prayer. He's saying, for this reason, looking back, because of what the cross means both in, for you Gentiles, both in terms of a relationship with God and what it means for all of us, Jew and Gentile, in terms of our relationship with each other, now we both approach God by grace through faith in Jesus. Because of all that, because y'all are now included with us as the family of God, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he's about to say, kneel before the Father. You can see that in verse 14. That's what he was going to say. And then he decides to time out. It's almost like he's saying, hey, wait, y'all might not know me. Remember, some of the people who are listening to this, Paul had not started their churches. This, was, this letter went from church to church, town to town, and some of those towns and some of those churches, they didn't know Paul. And he talks about being a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he, he pauses to say, let me explain that to you a little bit, who I am. And, and he does that through the lens of his calling. That's what he's talking about. In our language, he's talking about his deal, his assignment from God, the way he participates with what God is doing in the world. 
And he uses three words, gospel, grace, and mystery. Those three words he uses to describe his calling, gospel, grace, and mystery. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's the good news that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's defeated God's enemies, sin and Satan and death. It's the good news that the Messiah, Jesus, is establishing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. It's the good news that anyone who's following Jesus can experience life with a capital L in that kingdom, under God's rule and under God's reign. And Paul says, that's what I'm telling people. And then he goes on to talk about grace. So we've said the past couple of weeks as we've looked at grace, unmerited favor or undeserved favor. In this context, think of the word privilege. Paul is talking about the privilege that God has given him. And he would say, my calling, my assignment, this privilege that God has given me is to share the gospel, this good news about Jesus, to the Gentiles. That's what God has called me to do. And I didn't earn it. I didn't apply for the job and get it. I don't deserve it. But it's what God has placed upon me. Again, it's this privilege, this undeserved opportunity that God has given to me. I don't, uh, I do 100%. Paul knows he's been forgiven. Paul knows he's been chosen totally. But I think always in the back of his mind, he remembers who he was. He says, I'm the least of all God's people, less than the least of all God's people, whatever that means, less than the least. Again, I, I don't think it's, it's not uh, false modesty. Paul's not moving into self-pity, but I think he remembers who he was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knows. I was one of the chief opponents of the gospel. I was actively trying to stamp out the church. He says about himself, if there was a trial, I was voting guilty for all the Christians, even if it meant their death. I, I, was, a guilt, I was voting guilty for them. He says he was zealous for persecuting the church. He knew that about himself. And so he knows this, this calling that he has to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. He calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. He knows. I, didn't, I don't deserve that. I didn't earn that. Again, far from applying for the job and getting it based on my qualifications, I was actually actively undermining the work of God in my community. And still he chose me. To do this, he says about his calling, it's to preach the boundless riches of Jesus to the Gentiles, and it's a privilege for him. It's grace. And then he talks about, uses this word mystery. Mystery in the New Testament is just about the opposite of what we think of when we think of mystery. When we think of mysteries, we think of things that are hidden, things that are dark, puzzles that we have to solve. In the New Testament, it's the opposite. It's those things that used to be that that have now been revealed, things that were hidden that have now been disclosed, that have now been, been revealed to God's people. It's things that were hidden that have now been made known in our public knowledge, open secrets among God's people. And Paul says this mystery that God has entrusted to me, that he's revealed to me, it's about the two, these two groups, Jew and Gentile, becoming one. We're, we're, we're heirs together. We're members together in one body. We're sharers together. In the promises of Jesus, that word together, he uses three times to describe this mystery. It's the fact that God has taken two and made them one. And we all approach God now by grace through faith in Jesus. We talked last week about the hostility between Jew and Gentile. If you'd asked a Jew, what good are the Gentiles? They would say, for fuel for the fires of hell. And maybe there were a few of them. 
who would say, no, God has a plan and a purpose for them. You can see it going all the way back to Genesis 12. When God called Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. But still the understanding would be if a Gentile is going to relate rightly to God, he's got to become a Jew. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. Both Jew and Gentile approach God from the same place, on the same ground. It's by grace, through faith in Jesus. And so when Paul is talking about his calling, he says, I'm an apostle to the Gentile. I have this privilege of sharing the good news that Jesus is the Messiah with non-Jews, with Gentiles. And I explain or I make known this mystery to everybody, Jew and Gentile. Everybody needs to know the two have now become one, that God is making one new family, one new body. In Jesus. And so that's Paul's calling. In our language, that's his deal. That's his assignment from the Lord. And then he says there's two consequences, two implications, two results, uh, maybe is a better word, of this calling as Paul is practicing it, as he's being faithful and obedient to what God has asked him to do. One, he says, is the, the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God is revealed in the heavenly realms. We've seen that phrase a few times in Ephesians. We said that's the spiritual world. It's not way up there somewhere. It's right here. We just can't see it. And there are these beings, powers and principalities, angels, demons. We don't know all the beings. Some of them are good. Some of them are not. But they inhabit this spiritual world. And what Paul says is, when they look at the church, these beings, when they look at the church with a capital C, what they see is the wisdom of God. They see this incredible plan of God bringing together these two groups that really hated each other as one people in Jesus. That's what they see. That's Paul saying, that's what my obedience is doing. He's not taking credit because remember he said, this is, a, this is grace. This is a privilege that I have to do this. And this is one of the outworkings this is in this spiritual world in these heavenly realms that none of us can see. The wisdom of God is on display. When all of these powers and principalities, when they see the church, capital C, Jew and Gentile together, one family, one body, by, faith, by grace, through faith. They see the plan of God, this brilliant working out of God's will on the earth. And the second thing he says, another implication, that one's wonderful, this one may be a little bit less so, is he's in jail. He's in prison. And he said, that's why he starts, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is actually pretty interesting. He's actually a prisoner of the Roman government. But the way he sees it is he's actually a prisoner of Jesus. He's a prisoner because of his calling. It's very interesting the way Paul ties those two things together. He closes that section by saying, my sufferings are for your glory. The reason I'm under house arrest in Rome is because of my calling. It's because of my assignment, my commitment to take the gospel to people like y'all and to say things like the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. That's why I'm in jail. So he doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Nero or whoever the emperor is. He sees himself as a prisoner for the sake of Jesus. Acts 21 and 22 tells the story. You can go back and read it if you want. Paul's been on a mission trip eight to ten years since he's been back to Jerusalem. Now he's there and he goes to the elders of the church led by James, Jesus' brother. And they're excited to see him and hear what's been happening in all these far-flung cities of the Roman Empire. And he's telling them and they're excited. And then James says, hey, great things have been happening here too. We've got thousands of Jews who are now following Jesus. And they're zealous for the law. But here's the deal. They think you're not. So it's great what's been happening, but now that you're here, we're a little worried about the tension. 
Because what these Jews here in Jerusalem, who are zealous for the law and are following Jesus as their Messiah, what they're hearing is you're telling all the Jews out here in these places where you're going, they don't have to follow the law of Moses. We know that's not true, but that's what they think. So let's do this. Why don't you, there's four guys here and they're fulfilling a vow. Why don't you jump in on that? And you participate in that and that'll let everybody know that you still take the law seriously. And Paul says, okay. So he spends, uh, a week passes by and he goes to the temple. We talked about this last week. There's that wall, that literal wall around the court of the Gentiles and has all these signs on it. And if a Gentile crosses that wall and goes into the temple area proper, they're going to get killed. And there's some Jews from Asia who are stirring up. They see Paul and they don't like him and they're stirring up some trouble. And they say, he brought a, he brought a Gentile into the temple area. He's been traveling with a Gentile, actually a guy from Ephesus. And they say he did it and, and they starts a kind of a mob scene. There's a riot and people are trying to grab Paul and kill him and these Roman soldiers who are responsible for um, keeping the peace in the area. They come down and they get Paul and they rescue him from the mob, but it's by arresting him. And he says, hold on, let me talk to these guys. Like, these are my people. Let me talk to them. And he starts sharing and he says, hey, y'all, y'all know me. I'm a Jew just like y'all. I was raised, I was trained under Gamaliel. He's a a well-known rabbi. I was, I was against this whole thing. I, y'all know me. I was trying to stamp out the gospel. I was persecuting these of our fellow Jews who were following Jesus. I was zealous to do that. And then I had this experience when I was going to Damascus to arrest more Christians. I heard a voice from heaven. I saw a light and I was blinded and I, that told me to go to Damascus, so I did. And a guy named Ananias, who y'all all know, a righteous and devout Jew, he came and prayed for me, and I could see, and he told me. He said, here's your assignment from God. You've been chosen to see Jesus and to hear words from his mouth, and then you got to tell what you see and what you hear to everybody. That's what you need to do. And so I came back. I was sitting here in this temple praying, and I had another vision, and Jesus told me to get out of the temple. And I said, because, or get out of Jerusalem because nobody here would receive my message. And I, I said, no way. They know me. They know how I was. They, knew I, they, they know I, that I was against you. I was against the gospel. I was against the church. I was, trying, I was an active opponent of all of those things. And now if I'm actively promoting this message, they're going to know something significant happened. And Jesus said, get out. Go to the Gentiles. And when Paul says that to the crowd, Go to the Gentiles. They say, get rid of him. Rid the earth of him. That's what they say. That's the quote. He deserves to die. And so for Paul, he's saying, the reason I'm in jail is because I'm talking to y'all, Ephesians. It's because I'm telling y'all this good news about Jesus. It's because I'm telling y'all that, again, these two groups have now become one. He was in jail at the temple for briefly, and then he was under house arrest in Caesarea for two years, and then two more years under house arrest in Rome, and that's where he writes the letter of Ephesians. So at this point, when he's writing this, he's been under house arrest for two to four years, depending on when he wrote it during his Roman imprisonment. And he's saying, that's for y'all's benefit. And again, he's not trying to earn points with them. He's just letting them know. He's saying, I don't want y'all to be discouraged about the fact that I'm a prisoner. I see it as it's for your glory. It's for your sake. I'm not a prisoner of the Roman government. I'm a prisoner for the sake of Jesus, I'm a prisoner of his. Pretty remarkable perspective on suffering. 
We talk about calling all the time and that God has a calling on each one of our lives. There's a part he wants each one of us to play in what he's doing. And uh, for most of us, our parts are, they seem to us to be relatively mundane and trivial and insignificant. And I don't know that that's the case, but that's how we see them. A few things from Paul, just for you to be thinking about two briefly, and then one we'll spend a little bit more time on. One, whatever your calling is, it is a privilege. And so again, if your tendency is to downplay how God wants to use you, if it's tend to downplay your obedience and faithfulness, I would say just don't do that. Don't. Recognize it's a gift. It's grace. It's God's invitation to you. He's inviting you into what he's doing. And it's a privilege. Again, whether you think it's significant or not, it's a privilege that's been given to you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You didn't apply for it. He doesn't pick the best and the brightest for the things that we think are most important. He chooses who he chooses to do what he wants. And for all of us, it's privilege. The second thing I would say is for all of us to remember, we don't always see the, the consequences, the impact, the implications of our obedience. I don't know how Paul, got, Paul has some insight into what's going on in the spiritual world. A lot of times we don't get that. We just know we're trying to kind of be faithful and do our thing, and we don't know that it makes a difference anywhere. The people that we're trying to love and serve maybe are thankless or non-responsive. It can be easy to get, again, discouraged and think it doesn't even matter. From Ephesians 3, we can see it does. It matters here and it matters there in this invisible world that we can't see. And most of us, we're not going to know until we have God's perspective after death, how our little part impacted his bigger part. We're one piece of this mosaic that he's creating, but it's a piece. And so I want to encourage you, if you're prone to, again, getting discouraged because you don't see fruit, what you're doing feels thankless or mundane. Your obedience and your faithfulness, they have an impact. You just might not be able to see it now. And then the last thing, and we'll spend a bit more time on this. Your faithfulness, your obedience, very well may lead to your personal suffering. It may. I don't know that it's going to. But it may create difficulty in your life. Again, for Paul, there's a direct connection between his suffering and his obedience, his faithfulness to his calling. The reason he was in jail was because he was an apostle to the Gentiles. And we don't tend to think of our obedience leading directly to suffering. But for Paul, it did. He has this whole catalog of hardships that he experienced in 2 Corinthians 11. They'll be there on the screen. I don't know what it meant to be under house arrest, but I think it's better than some of those other things. I don't know that this was the worst thing he experienced. He talks about being whipped 39 times and beaten with rods and stoned and imprisoned multiple times and shipwrecked and hungry and thirsty and naked and cold and the one place in the middle of first excuse me second corinthians 11 he talks about being in danger everywhere he goes i'm in danger in the city i'm in danger in the country i'm in danger from jews i'm in danger from gentiles i'm in everywhere i go everywhere i go it's a risk and if i thought that about my own life or if one of you came and sat down and said hey here's been my last 10 years what do you think i would say you need a vacation that's what i would say i probably would not say oh you're right in the middle of god's will for you I probably wouldn't say that, which is bad for me. I'm supposed to know this thing. That's not good. But for Paul, far from being evidence that he was missing God, he actually said, this is how I know I'm being obedient. These are the marks of me being an apostle. 
It's all of this suffering lets me know that I'm actually doing exactly what God wants me to do. He's not a glutton for punishment. It's just, it just goes with the territory. I don't necessarily think that God is asking us to do hard things, but he's asking us to do things, and sometimes they're hard. But for us, because we're, we're raised in such a, a soft atmosphere, and I, I don't want to live anywhere else. But again, let's be honest. Because we're raised in so much comfort, when things do get difficult, our first, at least for me, my first response is I must be missing something. God loves me. He's a heavenly father. He wants good things for me, 100%. And so if this is getting to be difficult, then maybe I've missed it. Maybe I want to go do something else. And even if I may be wrong on that, God will forgive me anyway. That's not how Paul saw things. I'm 46. I became a Christian when I was 12. So three-fourths of my life I've been a Christian. I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Becoming a Christian at such a young age, I know it saved me from all kinds of trouble, all kinds of heartache, all kinds of bad decisions. One of the things for me, kind of an unintended consequence, I guess, of that, is it's easy for me to forget. I was 12. Like, I really wasn't that... I cussed in the sixth grade. That's if you said, what was I saved from? Well, I quit cussing. Like, I don't know. I was, I was at 12. And so when Paul says, I'm, the, I'm less than the least of, that's a hard one. I'm, I don't know when the last time I saw myself as less of the least of. And Paul in Philippians 3, and he, this catalog of who he was before Jesus I was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. I was, tra- and when it comes to following the law, I was faultless, persecuting the church. I was zealous. He's writing his resume, and it's this wonderful resume. And he says, it's all garbage in exchange for knowing Jesus. I'm trying to remember. I didn't have a resume. I was 12. And so it's easy for me to undervalue who Jesus is and what it means to be in his kingdom. And I don't know if that happens to y'all as well. Some of y'all have been doing this longer than I have. And sometimes that, again, we don't want to, I don't want to trade it for the world, 100%. Sooner the better, because following him makes life better. And sometimes, over time, when we, as we follow him, we can lose sight. We can undervalue who he is, what he saved us from, what he saved us You know these two parables, Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. Two different parables teaching the same thing. Basically, the kingdom, when you find it, whether you stumble upon it like treasure in a field, whether you're diligently searching for it like a merchant looking for pearls, when you find it, it's worth whatever you've got to give to get it. That's what he's saying. We know we don't purchase the kingdom. We don't buy our way into the kingdom. This is a, a parable about the value of the kingdom. It's worth everything. So there's a guy and he's walking in a field and he comes upon a a treasure and the the law of the land is finders, keepers, losers, weepers. So it's his. All he has to do literally is lift it up. That's the word. If he lifts it up, then it's his. But he wants to make sure that there's no, no, no counterclaims. Like nobody can say, you know, this guy, he was actually doing that for me or he's my servant and he was looking for me and so that's actually my treasure. So he buys the field. That way there's no question that the treasure in it's his, but it costs everything he's got. 
which implies that the treasure's worth more than everything he's got, right? Or that would have been a stupid thing to do. There's a merchant. How do merchants make money? They buy low and they sell high. So you've got a guy who sells pearls. So he's looking for a great deal. So then he can turn around and sell it at a better price, make some money. So he's diligently searching, you know, he's at the mart, diligently searching for the pearls. So then he can turn around and sell them in his store. And he finds one of great value. And so he sells everything he's got to buy it. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom, that's what the rule and reign of God is like. It's worth that much. It's that precious. It's that valuable. And again, for someone like me, who's been doing this for three-fourths of their life, I can lose sight of a hidden treasure and a pearl of great price. And I wonder if you can. When I think about the the parable of the soils and the the rocky soil and the, the person who receives the word with joy, but when persecution comes, they fall away. When I think about the difficulties Paul encountered and maybe some of the difficulties we encounter out of faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, again, not looking to be martyrs, but just as a consequence of obedience, sometimes things get difficult. Do my roots grow deep enough to stand firm? In those moments, do I remember It's worth everything, whatever it costs. Reputation, job, income, relationships, it's more valuable than any of it. When Jesus is talking about discipleship, he uses some strong words. He says, you've got to hate your parents. You've got to hate your spouse. You've got to hate your kids. And we hear that and it, it, it repulses us. What is he talking about? What he's saying, and you know this, in relationship to your love for the kingdom and your love for the king, your love for everyone else will look like hate. It will pale in comparison. It's not about hating other people. It's about rightly ordering your loves. And it's so easy for us to disorder our loves. But anything that we love more than we love God becomes an idol. And you know this, nothing else can bear the weight of your life. Your expectations. Nothing else can do it. They all crumble. He's the only one. So what does it look like for us? Again, recognizing that at times our faithfulness and our obedience will produce suffering. And rather than that causing us to shrink back, to take our ball and go home, to assume that we've missed the will of God. Heaven forbid for our roots to shrivel up and for us to die. What would it look like for us in those moments to have roots that are deep enough, a love that's strong enough? I'm not talking about emotion deeper than that. A love that's strong enough, that remembers the pearl of great price, the the hidden treasure. It's worth everything. It's worth getting beat with 39 lashes. It's worth stoning. It's worth getting beaten with rods. It's worth getting hungry and being cold and being thirsty worth shipwrecks and being in prison. And whatever that version of that is for you in Marietta in 2021, it's worth not getting invited to the party. It's worth your kid not necessarily making the team. It's worth you not getting the promotion. It's worth you losing your job. It's worth that. Again, we don't go looking for any of that stuff. But sometimes obedience leads to those kind of things. And again, I'm not... I don't necessarily value suffering for its own sake. God can use it 100%. Again, I don't think he's looking for martyrs. But he is looking for people who are willing to die out of obedience to him.
That's what I want you to focus on. You can close your eyes if you're willing to. You can pray along with me. This will be a long prayer. Stay with me. Don't feel beat up. Don't feel weighed down. This is all I want you thinking about. You can begin to ask the Holy Spirit this. Holy Spirit, show me. Have I misordered my love? Just ask him that question. That's really the most important question. Have I misordered my loves? And the thing, anything that you have uh, misordered, that you're loving, I'll just say more than you're loving the Lord, it's going to be a great thing. That's why you're tempted to love it more than you love the Lord. And again, recognize hate, that's a relative term. So what we're asking, Holy Spirit, would you begin to show us what it looks like to rightly order our loves? And you can pray that in your own heart. Holy Spirit, would you, I pray, that you would remind me, that you would remind us, the kingdom. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl of great price. Whether we've stumbled upon this treasure or whether we've searched it out diligently, either way, when we find it, it's worth everything. God, if there's anything that we're loving more than your son and his kingdom, would you bring conviction to us right now? And I pray, Father, that we would trust you enough as our Father to, even with knocking knees and trembling hands, to surrender those things that we do love deeply to you. Trusting they're safer with you than they are with us anyway. God, I don't wish suffering on anybody, but we do know we live in a fallen world. We have an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. Sin has consequences that ripple out. And so in, out of, as we live lives of faithfulness and obedience, there's going to be times where it's difficult, where, we, where the result will be suffering. And God, I pray for us, kids in the room, students in the room, adults in the room, all of those who are online, God, I pray that in those moments, I pray we'd stand firm. I pray like Paul, somehow we would be able to see what we're experiencing. I'm not a prisoner of the Roman government. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm not experiencing this because so-and-so is a bad person or because they didn't treat me well or because this is unfair. This, I'm experiencing this out of faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. It's just a consequence of that. God, would you help us? I certainly pray we wouldn't be morose about all of it. I think about that parable with great joy. That guy sold everything. He wasn't weeping when he was selling everything because he was getting something better. God, would you show us that? Would you remind us pearl of great price, treasure hidden in a field, the privilege of whatever it is you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.